Welcome to Equipping the Body. I'm Dr. Brad Starnes, and today we're going to continue our walk through the book of 1 Peter. And we have finished chapter 3, and now we are starting 1 Peter chapter 4. And uh, I want to take this text um, and simply, uh, as Alistair Begg says, make the main things the plain things, because the main things are the plain things. So, um, I believe what God is calling us to do uh, in this text is not necessarily easy to do, but I want it to be easy to understand. I want it to be clear what exactly God is asking from his people. So um, Peter's been talking about suffering, and then he moves to a very specific form of suffering, and that is persecution, suffering for one's faith. Um and yet in the midst of that, we are called to stay faithful and to live for the Lord. Um, and so that becomes more complicated um, when you're facing persecution. It's easy to live for the Lord when it's easy and permissible and tolerable from society and from the government to be a Christian. But when that changes, it becomes very difficult to live for the Lord, and if we're going to live for the Lord in persecution or in su- or in any type of suffering, but especially in the persecution of the saints, which is the context of those Peter was writing to who were suffering under Nero's uh, persecution as far as from the government, and then also they were persecuted by society, so to speak, from the religious Jews, and so... Um, who were clinging to the pharisaical interpretation of the Old Testament and saw them as a threat. And so the early Christians were persecuted on both hands, so to speak. Um, On the one hand, from the Roman government, especially during this time under the Neronian rule, and on the other hand, by the uh, Jews that held and clinged, uh, clave I guess would be the right word, to the pharisaical interpretation of the Old Testament that was predominant uh, in the time of the early church. And so the question is then this, how can we live for the Lord uh, in persecution? Well, by taking on the mind of Christ, because if anybody modeled how to be faithful, how to be godly, how to be morally upright, even in the midst of the worst persecution, the worst treatment, then we would have to agree that Jesus Christ modeled that best. And so we need to take on the mind of Christ. Now, what does all this mean? Where Am I just making this up? No, I believe it's here in the text. So 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'm going to read to you the first six verses. It says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also, here it is, here's where I got the mind thing, with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So we need to live for the Lord for all of our lives, for the will of God, right? For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abdominal idolatries. 
In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who were dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. And so Peter is writing to the persecuted church in the first century, specifically during the 60s, uh, when Nero's persecution was at its height. Of course, we know Nero uh, loved to jail Christians, to kill Christians, and even lit his own city on fire and then blamed Christians. I mean, he was really a sick individual. Um, so how can believers live for the Lord in persecution? Well, by taking on the mind of Christ. But what is the mind of Christ? How did Christ respond? Well, first of all, I want you to know in verses 1 and 2 uh, that we can live for the Lord in persecution by taking on the mind of Christ. And this requires believers to submit in suffering. Look at verses 1 and 2, to submit in suffering. Christ suffered for us in the flesh. That means that he physically suffered to the point of death, which we know is a reference to the cross. Who did he suffer for? Well, for us, right? He died for sin. And therefore, and I like how some tr translations uh, kind of paraphrase this, uh, but but it's it's good because it is true. It, what Paul is saying, or excuse me, what Peter is saying is, therefore, prepare, be ready to suffer. So arm yourself with the same mind. Now that word arm is a military term, right? We take up arms, arm yourself with the same mind. He said you need to take on the same mind because you are going to suffer uh, for the cause of Christ. And then he says, for he who has suffered has ceased from sin. Now, some say, well, that's talking about Jesus. Well, it can't be talking about Jesus because, uh, first of all, it's modifying the last reference, which would be yourselves, so that's us. And second of all, to cease from something means that you had to be doing something in the first place. So Jesus never sinned, right? That's what the Bible teaches. He was sinless. He was God, so he can't sin. And you can't cease from doing something that you weren't doing in the first place. To cease from it means that you were doing it. If I'm eating food and I cease to eat, that means I was previously eating. So clearly he's talking about humanity. Those of us that have been born again, yep. You say, well, hold on. Uh, we still sin. That's right. So what he is clearly talking about is a clean break, a clean turning away from sin, genuine repentance, somebody that's not living in sin. Yes, those of us who are saved still struggle with sin and war against the flesh, but that's not our practice. That's not our lifestyle. We don't we don't live in open unrepentant sin. There's been a there's been a cessation from that. There's been a cutting away from that. And that's one of the marks of being a true believer. Now, um that being said, uh this this brings suffering uh to believers because um 
we're going to suffer for the cause of Christ. So, anyways, we we've been there's a choice here to submit in suffering to God and abstain from sin or to give in. Now, again, put yourself in the context of those to whom Peter wrote this letter. The the temptation for them was to acquiesce, was to give in, was to say, okay, okay, we'll 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 go along. We'll go along. We'll stop this Jesus stuff and uh we'll be part of Roman society both religiously and civilly and we'll just We'll quit all this Jesus stuff. We promise. We, you know, we don't want any trouble. See, that was the temptation because had they submitted to the authorities, the suffering would stop. But instead, they submitted to Christ, and it cost them. It cost them. Um, I remember to illustrate this point. I remember when gay marriage was legalized. Because uh, they found marriage in the Constitution. Still trying to figure that one out. Um, there's no mention of marriage in the Constitution. Therefore, the Supreme Court constitutionally should have never heard the case. Because there's, there's no such thing. Marriage is not mentioned. They're only supposed to rule on things according to constitutional law. But if something's not mentioned in the Constitution, there you go. But anyways, it was legalized. There was a clerk of court. And she refused to sign a, a gay marriage license. Now, you, you can say what you want to about this lady, um, you know, whatever. But here's the bottom line. She knew it was going to cost her her job. And yet she decided to, to stand with Christ anyways. And so she submitted to the suffering of losing her job in order to stand for Christ. You you could say it this way. She had armed herself with the mind of Christ. So how is that the mind of Christ though, Pastor? What do you what do you mean by that? Submitting and suffering. Well who is the ultimate picture of submission and suffering? Jesus Christ. Case in point. The Garden of Gethsemane, Luke twenty two, forty two. Jesus is in the garden. He has been called to suffer on the cross. That is the plan of God the Father. And what does he do? Does he acquiesce? Does he say, oh, you know, never mind. I don't want to do this. Or does he submit? Well, let me read to you his own words. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Christ had the mind that he was going to submit to the will of God the Father suffering or no suffering and so we need to arm ourselves with the same mind as christ who submitted to that suffering in the garden of gethsemane and be willing to suffer for the lord now so therefore living for him by having that mindset of christ that suffered that submitted in suffering and then lastly this requires separation from sinners. We need to be separate from sinful lifestyles. So, <clears throat> Peter continues, and he says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. These are individuals. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. 
So the, he kind of covers a litany of sins here. And these sins speak of drunkenness. That's pretty self-explanatory. That's alcohol abuse, right? Drinking to the point of drunkenness. We we understand that is sinful and wicked. Um, sexual sin talks about lewdness and lust. Uh, drinking parties. These these all included. This was part. Listen, in the first century, uh, this was normal part of life. Uh, we look at our society now, and, it, and it's soaked with 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 immorality of a sexual nature, um, from you know the deviants and the perverts uh, who should be in prison, but now parade down the street, uh, men wearing dresses and putting on lipstick in front of children. That that is perverted. That's disgusting. God hates that. Um, that that should not be paraded. That ought to be penalized, um, the, or, or at least inst, uh, put these people in an institution. That's sick. Listen, you look in the mirror and you're a man, and you say, "I'm not a man." You're sick. You're sick in the head. Period. I mean, it's not that you know. If I looked in the mirror and said, "You know what? I think today I'm a giraffe." I'm sick. Take me to a doctor. Um, so, but this isn't new. Homosexuality and perversion, it's not new. The Bible speaks against all sorts of sexual sins. Um, sexual deviancy, which was once closeted, is now celebrated. And we need to separate from these things, just as he talked about believers in this time. He said that was the past. Get away from that. I'm putting this in plain English. That was the past. This is, you're saved now. You're in Christ now. Get away and stay away from these things. Drunkenness, revelries, abominable idolatries. Now, you you say, well, you know, I don't struggle with any of those other things. uh, Or I struggle with this, but, you know, idolatry. I don't have idols in my house. Oh, you don't? Well, listen, the definition of an idol is anything that gets more of your attention, desires, or whatever, attention, love, whatever, focus, more than Jesus Christ. It's not necessarily just a little wooden statue. That television set can become an idol when you give it more time than you do reading your Bible. The gym, something good for you, right? Going to the gym, that's a good thing for you. But when that gets more of your focus and more of your priorities than Jesus Christ, that's an idol. And so an idol can be anything that takes the place or takes a higher priority in your life than Jesus Christ. But there's nothing new under the sun, okay? All these things, all these things from the pagan days, the, the these orgies, fornication, sexual sin, um, all of this is is seen in our day, um, drunkenness, alcohol abuse. Did you know in the town that I'm I live in Woodruff, or I live in Inneree, but Woodruff, our main big town, there are more bars in Woodruff than there are grocery stores. That's a, <laughs> that's sad, ain't it? I mean, that's really sad. There are more bars in Woodruff than there are grocery stores. That should tell us something. That should tell us something. Weep for the culture. 
And so he says, get away from this stuff. Get away from this stuff. Stay away from this stuff. Now, you're going to be ostracized because he said they think it's strange that you don't run with them and these things. Ladies and gentlemen, when you abstain from the ways the world deems completely normal, those who are in the world, they're going to think it's strange and they're going to malign you for that. They're going to speak evil of you for that. I remember talking with a parent and their child was in college and because the child uh, didn't get drunk with the friends, they started calling the child Jesus freak or church boy. Well, hey, let them, let them have their fun because we're accountable to Christ and we're to separate from sinners. And you say, what do you mean separate? Well, I don't mean isolate. We have to live in this world, but we don't have to live like this world. And we don't build uh, deep relationships with people who are lost. We, we pray for them. We seek to win them to Christ. But we be careful because we don't want to be influenced and be drugged down into the depths of depravity that Christ rescued us from. You say, well, that sounds kind of judgmental. Well, if you think the way I put it sounds judgmental, why do you hear what Paul said? In 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 17 Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with unbelievers? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Not says Brad Starnes, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Second Corinthians chapter six, verses fourteen through seventeen. And so Paul and Peter are in complete agreement here. If you're going to live for the Lord, even if they speak evil, even if they call you Jesus boy or Jesus girl, you're going to have to separate from sinners by separating from the activity that they participate in. You can't live a life for the Lord in persecution when you give in to the persecution, when you acquiesce to the peer pressure. Because that was the temptation they faced. Well, we'll just quit this Jesus stuff and they'll leave us alone. And even though we're not being threatened with jail time or our lives yet here in America, we are threatened and treated very different civilly. And I think anybody who has a brain and has eyes that work can see that. The worst thing in the eyes of the media and the radical left you can be right now is a Christian. They hate us. They mock us. They call us bigots. They want to take away our rights to assemble, our rights to pray. Over a hundred documented cases after the overturn of Roe of Antifa and BLM spray painting the phrase God's dead and other things on churches and pro-life pregnancy centers. Ladies and gentlemen, statistically to this day in the world, look it up if you don't believe me, I will go to bat on this. This is a statistic I've followed for years 
more Christians are persecuted than any other religious group in the world. That is a statistical fact. It is not popular. It has never been popular to be a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian. Now, in America, we got a little bit of a stay, okay? But we're quickly going down the path that the rest of the world's already been on, where Christianity's going to be ostracized, demonized, and then eventually criminalized. And so, though we may not face that in our lifetime, and quite frankly, I hope I don't, we still face other forms of persecution in a lighter sense to a varied degree, peer pressure, etc. And see, the temptation's really always the same, is to deny Christ and go with the crowd. If you'll, if you'll allow me to give you one more Bible story for illustration, it's really the same temptation Pilate faced. Christ or the crowd? Popularity or doing what's right? You know, I know the context changes and the stakes may change, but the temptation's really the same. Christ or the crowd. You gonna go with Jesus or you gonna go with what's popular? Pilate faced that temptation. Of course, he chose wrong. These believers were facing that situation, and even us in our day, on some level, faced the same situation. How do we... Overcome, how do we live for the Lord in persecution? By taking on the mind of Christ. Arm yourself with the same mind. Well, what kind of mind did Christ have? Well, he's separated from sin. He was above it. Now, I know we can't do that, but we can make the effort to stay away from it. And he submitted to the will of God the Father in suffering. Well, that brings us to verse number 7. Verse number 7, and we'll pick that up next time. So I hope you keep going through the book of First Peter verse by verse. That's the only proper way to study a book of the Bible is in an expositional fashion, looking at each text, each passage within its uh, book context and its historical context. And that's what we want to do here. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to be popular. I don't want to be famous or anything like that. I just want to teach people by example and also by illustration of how to study the Bible properly in its context. And so I hope you have a wonderful, blessed day, and we'll look forward to you tuning back in.